welcome to Cybercast. I'm your host, Kate Macri. To set the tone for season four, we are going to dive into an interview with National Cyber Director Chris Inglis. The National Defense Authorization Act of 2021 created the National Cyber Director role, and Mr. Inglis was nominated for the position by President Joe Biden on April 12, 2021. On June 17th, the Senate confirmed Inglis to the nation's top cyber position. Inglis graduated from the Air Force Academy in 1976 and served in the U.S. Air Force until 2006, when he assumed the role of Deputy Director for the National Security Agency. Since 2015, he has served as a Distinguished Visiting Professor in Cybersecurity Studies at the Naval Academy. As National Cyber Director, Inglis is responsible for facilitating cross-agency cyber collaboration and communication, as well as directing the national cyber strategy. One of Inglis's first directives was to implement the White House Executive Order on Improving the Nation's Cybersecurity, which requires federal agencies to implement zero-trust architectures. In an interview with CyberCast, Inglis discussed his top cyber priorities for 2022, whether or not federal agencies should prioritize offensive versus defensive cyber activities, and how government can work towards solving the cyber workforce shortage. So to start us off, can you talk about your top cyber priorities going into 2022 and how you see CISA, the Justice Department, the NSA, and other federal cyber partners supporting you in this work? Yeah, so again, thanks very much for the question and the opportunity to have the discussion. So the Office of the National Cyber Director, having been uh, just stood up now six months ago, literally today is when I showed up, we continue to focus on executing the Biden-Harris administration agenda for cyberspace, which in a word is to strengthen the parts that are already in this space and to increasingly make them such that they leverage one another. I think that to the question asked about what do I see as the relationship that I might have, that this office might have with CISA, the Department of Justice, other major players in this space? I think our job is to champion their efforts, to better connect their efforts, and to create coherence amongst their efforts. We don't lack for some strong parts in this space. Um, each of those that I've mentioned in the private sector well beyond are actually quite good at many things, but they're not well connected um, such that the transgressor in this space is still offered the opportunity to beat one of us while the rest of us stand idly by. We need to change that calculus such that they have to actually defeat all of us to beat one of us. That's about collaboration. That's about unity of effort, unity of purpose. I think that's the focus of this office. To follow up on that, how do you see collaboration between the top cyber leaders in federal government in an ideal world? Yeah, so first, um, to describe what it isn't, uh, collaboration is not um, division of effort where everyone operates alone using only their sight lines, only the information that they have to execute responsibilities that are independent of one another. We will and we must respect the distinction in authorities and responsibilities, but we have to do it such that we bring the barriers down to information sharing and create what I would describe as professional intimacy, such that the knowledge gained by one party can be useful to all other parties. So to that extent, I see that the Department of Defense, Department of Energy, the FBI, CISA, 
they all have great, deep, and sharp strengths, and they all have unique authorities. But we need to do so. We need to execute those in a way that they actually help one another. So if there's a sector risk management agency, that's the term of art for an organization within the government that deals directly with a critical sector, we should continue to allow them to have that professionally intimate relationship with that sector. They speak the language of that sector. But what they learn there, at least in terms of the general threat stream and the best practices, needs to be put at the disposal of everyone. Right, so that increasingly a CISA, which is accountable for coordinating the sector risk management agencies, can take advantage of what we learn on a broad number of interfaces um, for the benefit of all of those interfaces. I, th I think that's the job before us. It's not so much creating a new authority, but rather connecting and, and leveraging all the existing authorities. Can you discuss the importance of information sharing and how you hope your office can facilitate more communication between typically siloed sectors of the government like CISA, Justice Department, NSA? And can you talk about what some of your biggest challenges are in this area? Yeah, but information sharing is a, is a great term of art and it's always been something that has been valuable. Um, it's always been aspirational that we would share information that would be useful. Emphasis on the term useful. So I would say that what we need to focus on, what is useful information? I think that's information that is granular, meaning it's got enough fidelity that you would know what to do with it. It needs to be timely such that you get it in time to do something useful with it. Um, and it needs to be actionable in, in the sense that you've actually made sure that the person is authorized to use it. Um, not just so that it's useful, but they're authorized to use it, that you kind of have every expectation that they're going to use it within their line of authority. To do that oftentimes means that you can't simply push information or pull information, um, meaning pull with P-double-O-L kind of in, in mind, but that you have to actually have some understanding about what the party that you're sharing that information needs. You have to have, to have some understanding about what they intend to do. Um, that's what I describe as professional intimacy. You don't get that by simply pushing information or pulling information such that people can extract, um, kind of ask questions of it and extract data from it. You get that by collaborating on problems of common interest, by essentially putting your people in a cheek by jowl situation so that they can actually see what the other party is trying to do and understanding that, offer them information they might not have had the sense to ask about or that they might not, not, not have known that you had. Uh, the case in point that I think comes from 2021 that we want to double down and strengthen going into 22 is the creation of what CISA calls their Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative. They, by legal authority, um, have the authority to put private and public sector subject matter experts on a common floor plate, um, physical floor plate, but a virtual floor plate extending from that works as well, so that they can co-discover and co-mitigate threats on the fly. That's different than a division of effort. That's different than pushing information around the system. And so when I emphasize collaboration, I mean to do so in a way that's different than simply giving information. Sure. Given how your office primarily acts in an advisory role, how are you going to incentivize the federal government to upgrade legacy systems and basically do what needs to be done to protect data and software supply chains and other high-risk assets? Yeah, well, the office's uh, statutory authority actually extends well beyond an advisory role um, to the president or, for that matter, to the players in this space. 
by virtue of the National Defense Authorization Act of 2021, which created this office, we're empowered to help develop and oversee implementation of a national cyber strategy to include a thorough review of agency budgets, to consult with and convene departments and agencies on cyber response planning and strategy, and to lead various lines of effort involving federal coordination of cyber activity. Um, that includes not simply securing information and communications technology, um, but also looking at the doctrinal components. What are the roles and responsibilities? So all of that creates a body of authority or influence um, that allows us to essentially stand in and make a difference to the ecosystem. And I would describe it as we first need to address roles and responsibilities. We then need to make sure that we're executing those roles and responsibilities. And then we need to make sure that the material, whether that's the technology or the software or the supply chains, to make sure that they're fit for purpose. In doing that, I think that we in the Office of the National Cyber Director don't see ourselves so much as having a new power or raw power for its own sake, um, but rather using our power to better connect the authorities, the roles, responsibilities that are already in this space. If we're to be judged by one thing above all, all others, um, I would hope in a year or two or three um, that we would look to see whether there's been a positive change in the collaboration of the various parties to include the private and the public sector that are already in this space. Sure. To follow up on that, what specifically does your office's role of advising agencies on the cybersecurity portions of their budgets or IT strategies look like in practice? Yeah, so we have uh, one of our statutory responsibilities is to assess um, the sufficiency of cyber budgets. We're going to expand that slightly to talk not just about the dollars, but rather the authorities, the roles and responsibilities to ensure that we are using the collection of those assets, you know, to the right and proper um, kind of purpose. In that regard, um, that actually intersects with what the Office of Management and Budget does. And so we've taken pains to harmonize that by making the federal chief information security officer, Chris DeRusha, um, dual-hatted as the deputy national cyber director for federal cyber, so that we're giving common um, harmonized guidance to the federal CISOs and CIOs. Um, we've taken pains to work with the Office of Management and Budget in our budget review authority to ensure that the work that we do and that the work that they continue to do, have always done, is harmonized and synchronized so that when we provide advice and counsel to the executive branch and ultimately to the Congress, um, that we do so based upon a common body of information and, and largely um, in a way that is complementary as opposed to competitive. What do you see as some of the practical implications of doing this? Just to follow up on that. I think the practical implications would be that um, if we do a sufficiently comprehensive assessment of what cyber dollars, what cyber personnel, what cyber authorities we're bringing to bear, we could assess whether what we're doing is making the difference intended, or more importantly, whether it's making the difference necessary. We could determine whether or not this is a collaboration or whether it's a series of independent stovepiped efforts. And identifying whether we're in one place or the other, we will then have the necessary insight to know how to adjust that. I think at the end of the day, it's not about spending more dollars, though ultimately that, that's likely to be the case, but spending the dollars we have in the most optimal fashion. And today we know too little about how the sum total of those dollars, those roles and responsibilities 
or for that matter, kind of the authorities granted to various parties. We know too little about whether that adds up to something greater than some of its parts. I think that's really important as a foundation going forward. Absolutely. So changing gears a little bit, um, I'd love to talk about the executive order on improving the nation's cybersecurity, which intends to ramp up cybersecurity efforts across the federal civilian sector in particular. For federal agencies with what may be lackluster cyber performance, what are some of the most important takeaways from the cyber EO in your perspective? Well, first, I I give um, huge credit to Ann Neuberger and her team on the National Security Council, which works these cyber issues kind of day after day. Um, The executive order that they constructed well before the arrival of the National Cyber Director I think is an important and essential down payment on getting the federal architecture into a place where it could then be defensible so that we might then actually defend it. Um, I think the foundational elements that it called for, things like multi-factor authentication, um, reliable asset inventories, the universal use of encryption, adopting a zero trust architecture are long, um, long wanting. We, we've needed these for quite some time, and it's high time that we kind of not simply specified them, but mandated them. Now that we're rolling that out across um, the federal architecture, we can have a foundation that is defensible. And if on top of that, we then kind of execute the practices where we have unity of effort, unity of purpose between the chief information security officers, we can, for I think the first time, say that we can force an adversary, a transgressor that comes at us to to beat the inherent resilience and robustness that is in this architecture and to have to actually best all of us to best one of us. Um, Those are, I think, placing the the initiative back in the hands of the defender, which I think is necessary to get ahead of this problem. We too often pride ourselves on reacting well, responding well to the initiative of a transgressor. Um, that that's simply a way that we will lose the game more slowly. We need to get ahead of that. I think that this is a great down payment on all of that. So how can federal agencies make the most of what they have in terms of legacy IT, which is often susceptible to more security vulnerabilities, while continuing to upgrade legacy systems and keeping pace with emerging tech trends and with federal orders like the move to zero trust? Yeah, so first I would say that, um, you know, we're, we're going to have to make further investments in the digital infrastructure, in its technology, hardware, and software, in its practices, right? What we do to essentially understand how it's being used, the analytics that we run on it, all of those are gonna require some further investment. But, but the first thing we need to do is to make sure that it is optimized in its present state Um, for kind of our ability to understand how it's being used, what authorities are actually granted to the persons on it, and to make sure that it is as defensible as it can be in its present state. Um, That means that we have to turn on multi-factor authentication in the places where it already exists. Um, We have to grant least privilege as opposed to total privilege to persons who kind of live on these um, systems of interest. We have to practice zero trust principles Um, not believing that these architectures are ever perfectly secure, they never will be, Um, but rather that they're at best defensible, we must actually defend them. If we do all of those things, even with the architecture that we have in hand, 
I think that we'll give a better accounting of ourselves in defending what ultimately we're supposed to be defending. It's not the architecture so much as the missions that depend upon that. I think that that is a different way to approach the problem using the same materiel. I think that we can do better, and I have seen us actually do considerably better over the last few months. Um, the hard work of line CISOs and CIOs can and will make a difference, whatever you give them. Um, so we'll give them more and better materiel. We just need them to approach this as if we're defending mission as opposed to architecture for its own sake. Sure. You've talked a lot about aligning aggressive criminal cyber actions with consequences. How do you hope to collaborate with other federal cyber leaders to do that? And what do you think that might look like in practice? Yeah, so that's a great question. The larger context that I think I've said that in kind of says that um, as a matter of strategy, there are three broad areas that we need to um, kind of give time and attention to. The first of those is to build in resilience and robustness as an inherent property of the digital architecture that our missions rely on. And that's in technology, that's in roles and responsibilities, that's in our people skills. The second part of the broad strategy is to make sure that having made something that's defensible but not secure, we actually defend it. That means we have to run analytics, we have to understand what's actually happening in these architectures, what authorities, what life forces are coursing across them. A zero trust architecture that then applies zero trust principles gets us kind of, I think, a long way towards something that's not simply defensible but well defended. That gets us to the third piece, which you've asked about, which is how do we align, how do we align actions to consequences? Um, there's actually two parts to that. There needs to be rewards for good behavior. If you've behaved well, if you've done due diligence in constructing and defending your system, you deserve the material assistance of people in your sector, of, the, of your government, um, such that we can, um, in using unity of effort, unity of purpose, bring resources to bear to assist you at a time of need, um, at a time of extremis. And then finally, uh, what remains on the table is how do you deal with transgressors? You know, if you have people or organizations or nation states that continue to transgress in this space, we need to use all instruments of power to kind of stop that activity, to bring them to justice. And I say all instruments because this is not simply cyber on cyber. Um, we are not going to simply find and kind of remove these threats by using cyber methods alone. We need to use law enforcement. We need to use diplomacy. We need to use, in some cases, public shaming. Um, but to create the conditions that we want in cyberspace by ensuring that there are positive consequences for good behavior and that there are negative consequences for bad behavior. None of those lives alone in this model. Um, we actually have to do all of those so that we optimize um, the pursuit of what we want to do with these architectures as opposed to leaving the field to the adversaries, the aggressors, to essentially have them seize the initiative. And when we continue to respond to them, we find ourselves distracted from our primary purposes. Just to follow up on that, it seems like a lot of this is going to require some pretty big cultural changes across federal government to see cyber differently than they have in the past. Do you see this as a pretty big challenge for your office, or do you find that most other cyber leaders in federal agencies are, you know, willing or working, or at least, you know, working hard to try and overcome this mindset of putting cyber on the back burner? Yeah, I, I, the good news here is that I think that there is a sea state change in, in kind of 
broadly, both users and, and leaders um, who are accountable for missions, understanding that this is an issue, that there's something going on here, um, that there's a cyber challenge, a cyber problem. Um, the bad news is, is that in, in far too many cases, uh, there's still an assumption that it's somebody else's problem to solve, that there are champions who have the word cyber or IT in their job title, that it's their problem alone to solve. Um, that's, I think, what we need to challenge, which is actually this is everyone's challenge or everyone's opportunity, um, that every individual user can take actions to help in their own defense, that every organization can take actions in how they build and operate this digital infrastructure that makes it more likely that a transgressor is going to have to get past resilience and robustness or get past an alert kind of population, not just the folks with cyber or IT in their job title. Um, and to your point about whether we have cyber on the back burner or the front burner, we need to understand that cyber doesn't exist for its own sake. The only reason that we care about cyber, the principal reason we care about cyber, is so that we can then achieve the mission, the, the functions, the responsibilities that we built this system for in the first place. Um, a colleague um, in the private sector, a fellow by the name of Jeff Moss, um, told me something a few months ago that I found you know, wonderfully insightful. He asked the question, he said, why do race cars have bigger brakes? Paused and was trying to think my way through what was something other than the obvious answer. And he goes, they have bigger brakes so they can go faster. He said, they don't have bigger brakes for the brakes sake. They have bigger brakes so that the mission of the race car can be achieved. We need to think of cyber in the same way. The only reason we do cyber is so that we can achieve our end mission. So when we ask someone who's in the IT or the cyber field, what do you do? They shouldn't say, I defend digital infrastructure, I defend software, I defend hardware. They should say, I defend missions. In the same way, when you ask an agency head, a department head, or a CEO in the private sector, why do you have cyber? It shouldn't be because it's simply required by statute, law, regulation. It's like, I do that so that I can defend my mission. The resilience and robustness that it brings, my ability to have confidence that those functions will work, is what allows me to extend my mission, my purpose, right, into otherwise challenged spaces. I think that's the thought leadership that all of us need to bring to the table. Yeah, that's a that's a great way to think about it, about uh, cyber being about defending the mission. I feel like I hear a lot of similar sentiments coming out of CISA in particular. Uh, so that's a... That's a really good way to think about it. That kind of leads into my next question um, about cyber offense and cyber defense. Both of those activities are obviously important, but given the current state of cyber activity in which there's a lot of aggressive criminal activity and ransomware attacks, bombarding federal agencies, which do you think deserves more federal attention and more funding or budgetary prioritization? Cyber offense? offensive activities or defense activities? Or is that kind of a dumb question where it's like they're both important? No, it's a great question. It's a common question. Um, I would say that in our society, we, we don't have an offense of anything for its own sake. It, it is almost always an extension of the defense, right? We don't call it the Department of Offense. We call it the Department of Defense. And, and why is that? Because the only reason we have those tools is to essentially backstop you know, what we hope is a proper defense, defense of things that we're not simply authorized to conduct, but which give meaning to our lives, our personal lives, our business lives, our national security endeavors. And so my thinking is, is that we need to attend to the defense first, 
that any offensive methods we might kind of employ are an extension of the defense and that therefore we should focus first and foremost on resilience and robustness. Having built systems that are then defensible, we must actually defend them. That means we need to be attentive to what like forces are coursing across these systems, find problems at the earliest possible moment, engage those problems. Sometimes there are simple errors. Sometimes it's attributable to nature, sometimes attributable to a transgressor, but find those at the earliest possible moment um, such that we don't have to use offense to bring consequences to bear on someone we allow to go too far. Um, that being said, any good defense needs to have an ability to impose consequences when a transgressor goes too far, uh, but no offense exists on its own merits for its own sake. Um, and therefore, I would put defense first, offense as an extension of that, and make sure that they're in the right and proper balance. So the cybersecurity workforce shortage is hampering many federal agencies' efforts to beef up security. And given that federal hiring standards have kept prominent tech and cyber talent out of the hiring pool in the past, such as restrictions around recreational drug use. Do you have an opinion on adjusting federal hiring policies to bring in new talent to address the state of federal cybersecurity? Yeah, I think I'll speak for the federal government, but I think I could speak for any organization. You want at least three qualities in your workforce. You want it to be trustworthy. You want to be able to be able to give them authority to do things, to exercise initiative and discretion, and, and therefore you're going to need to know something about what their values are. Um, we don't employ perfect people, but we have to employ people who can be trusted to execute mission where you're not going to give them a script um, so much as you're going to give them an envelope of authority within which to operate. Two, you want them to essentially show up with a desire to make a positive difference. Um, you want them to want to matter. That's kind of the ethos of public service. That's a very powerful combination of the trustworthy and they want to matter. Um, and three, you want them to be diverse, meaning you want them to bring a very diverse, broad set of skills, perspective experiences to the table um, because that's mission essential, right? You, you kind of the brain trust you're trying to develop you want to essentially be able to consider every possible dimension of a challenge or an opportunity and to think in a way that no single individual could, um, full-featured, multidimensional. Um, if you can achieve those three things, kind of a trustworthy, kind of a desire to matter, um, diverse workforce, um, nothing can hold you back. I think that then is what drives um, the hiring strategy for the federal government. I'm confident it drives many, if not all, private sector organizations. Turns out that in the cyber world, that that's a pretty kind of hard um, kind of group of people to find and attract. If at the same time you require them to have these deep and sharp computer science or these cyber-oriented skills, and that's I think what we need to revisit is have we actually specified these jobs with respect to cyber or computer science in the right way? Not everyone needs to have a computer science degree. Um, not everyone needs to have very specific and sharp information technology skills. In many of these jobs, even chief information security officers, what you need is an ability to think critically, an ability to use the various um, skill sets that, that are under your control to apply them to build and defend missions of interest based upon digital infrastructure. So I would take a leaf from some of the private sector organizations that I've seen, a leaf from their book, which is to let's revisit the skills that we've actually required um, let's make sure that having specified those, that 
not the lowest common denominator, but it's focused on the things that we really need. Um, let's open the kind of opportunities then to a broader swath of people. If we focus on diversity, not simply for its own sake, but because of the mission kind of essential quality of the workforce that that gives us, uh, we'll find that we open um, the door to a considerably greater number of people. Um, the last thing that we need to do is to make sure that we give them not simply the skills or the education, but we give them the opportunity to have experience. And so often we'll find somebody shows up with a degree or certificate lacking any material experience. They don't know quite how to get started, and sometimes the organization doesn't know how to employ them. Um, so let's find some bridge programs that kind of reach out to schools or training um, activities and give people early opportunity to mentor, to get some experience, so that we bridge the gap between education and training to actual placement in the workforce itself. What I'm suggesting, I, I can't perhaps describe in five minutes because it's a very comprehensive approach that says you have to reconsider the skills, you have to reconsider the kind of the pipeline, and you have to reconsider the path by which you get people from aspiration to on-the-job on the activities. I think if we take all of those things on, um, that we'll be in a better place because there's a larger population, I think, that we can appeal to. There's a significantly larger population that is diverse, that's trustworthy, and that wants to matter. Now we need to actually help them find the workplace that we've created for them. Sure. So my last question for you before we finish up is, do you see a role for the private sector in assisting with your office? And if so, what would it be? I quote a friend of mine, dear friend of mine, Jen Easterly, who's kind of um, the leader of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency over at the Department of Homeland Security. Um, she describes the role of the federal government in this domain of interest, cybersecurity. The role of the federal government beyond defending its own assets um, is to essentially support the private sector. Much, if not most, of our critical functions within the society are essentially hosted by, run by, depended upon, right, infrastructure that's built and operated by the private sector. In that regard, we need to then reverse the relationship to say, what is it that the federal government can and should be doing to support the private sector in that regard? Um, that, I think, constitutes a fundamentally different relationship that the government has with the private sector. We need to be proactive about understanding what their needs are, proactive about pushing those services to them, and very proactive about entertaining collaborative relationships where we can um, surprise one another with some professional intimacy that allows us to understand what the need is as opposed to what the question might have been. Oftentimes, two parties who are in a division of effort ask questions of one another that are the wrong question and therefore lead to the provision of the wrong thing. If we have a collaboration, which is we're combining our efforts to solve problems of common interest, we get to a place where kind of we break down those, those barriers of misunderstanding and misperception and get to a place where perhaps um, it might be that all of us can help defend each of us or turn that around, that a transgressor needs to beat all of us to beat one of us. I think that's where we need to get to. The federal government needs to be a viable partner in that, not just for the private sector, but for state, local, tribal, territorials. And, and if we do that, I think we can make better use of the resources we have while we argue for more resources that should be brought to bear. Sharpening consequences for malicious cyber activity, helping federal agencies center their budgets around IT and cyber, and improving information sharing around best cyber practices and cyber incidents. 
can go a long way to help government protect itself from the onslaught of ransomware. As the new Office of the National Cyber Director ramps up resources to meet these needs, check back in with CyberCast throughout the year for the latest cyber news and insight. I'm your host, Kate Macri. Thank you for listening. CyberCast, along with GovCast and HealthCast, is a production of GovCIO Media and Research. For more podcasts and to check out the other shows, head to govciomedia.com. Watch out for new episodes released every Tuesday and Wednesday across our shows. You can follow all of them in your favorite podcast platform. And if you like what you heard, make sure to let us know by leaving a review. And if you have any topics you think we should look into, contact us at newsletter at gcio.com. 